Father, I give you thanks, as always, for those gathered here, for the opportunity to teach, for the word laid out before us, for the presence of the Holy Spirit in each of us and working in this room even now, and Father, as well, for the blessed opportunity to be saved by grace, to know you through your Son, to be made like you by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, to be reconciled. And as we go into the Word this morning, my prayer, Father, is that the truth that has been placed in this book from ages past, waiting just for today, for us to gather and to hear it and to understand it and to learn from it, I pray, Father, that we would not let this opportunity go by without giving thought and consideration to what it is you've brought before us. Let the words on the page, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, impress themselves upon our hearts. May the truth that is there not simply be a truth that we understand intellectually, but rather, Father, let it be a truth that in our hearts works the work of your Holy Spirit, does the change that's necessary, convicts us, Father, of sin, draws us closer to you. Because, Father, we know that your word is not given to us merely for our knowledge, but for our very lives, that we might be saved from our sin, that we might be rescued from its effects, that we might be conformed to your image so that we might be useful to you in the work that is to be done in your kingdom. I pray, Father, all those goals could be met even in this one day. And in the days forward, Father, that we would carry what we learn here out and use it in the world as you give us opportunity. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We are, as you know, working our way through Luke verse by verse, as is our practice here. Last week we uh, finished at about verse 10. I actually had intentions to go further last week, but that didn't happen. So, never mind. We've got it in in, uh, check today. We are going to be moving through chapter 7 from that point forward. I want to remind you, as I always do at the beginning of each week, a little of where we're going and what the major themes are and how we're progressing through the story. Christ's ministry on earth was first and foremost about his suffering and his dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Make no mistake about it. But as Jesus went through the course of his earthly life, as he made his way steadily toward the cross in the years of his ministry, he was also using that time that he had on earth with his disciples in order to prepare them for their own ministry. Remember, the disciples will be the ones who carry the church into the world, who help found the church. And Christ is trying to prepare them for this difficult task in stages, one day at a time, in relationship with them and in his teaching to them. That preparation had two parts. And this is much like how we're taught today. If you're in school, if you're in college, if you've ever been to college, or even in high school, you already know what the major aspects of teaching, what the major divisions of teaching are. First, you have what many call didactic teaching. It's a fancy word for lecture. So didactic, this might even be considered didactic teaching. Some of you might say other adjectives to describe it, but keeping that to yourself, this is didactic teaching. It simply means we're going to give you instruction, impart you instruction in a lecture form. But Jesus also took opportunities to provide the second kind of instruction, that other kind being uh, demonstration, practical application, some opportunity to take what you've learned and put it into practice. And he did that to reinforce the didactic part. You teach didactically, but you reinforce in a practical sense. He often demonstrated the truth of what he taught in how he lived out his own ministry. And so by doing so, he became an example to the apostles, and he gave them an opportunity to see the truth that he spoke of lived out. Now, in chapter 6, 
the chapter we studied in the last five, six weeks, Luke saw uh, or presented us Christ beginning that didactic teaching in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. That was a beginning stage of that didactic process. And that process will continue all the way to the cross. Jesus never stops that process. Now, in chapter 7, though, Luke is beginning to show us the second half of that teaching process. Now we're beginning to see some of the practical reinforcement that Jesus wants to demonstrate through his life. And he's going to do that now, first, as we studied last week, in his demonstration of how the Gentiles were also to receive the gospel. They were also to receive God's grace. In fact, that stunning statement he made of praising the Roman soldier as having more faith than anyone in Israel, that would have been a very cutting remark to a Jew. It would have seemed very unfair, very stunning. But today now, as we continue in chapter 7, Jesus is going to move into a new area of practical demonstration. He's going to reflect the passing nature of the law. And we said this last week, that one of the things Jesus is going to begin to demonstrate is not just that the gospel message has an audience bigger than the Jewish nation. It includes the Gentile world as well. Secondly, he has to explain to the, Jew, uh, to the disciples, righteousness does not come by the law. The law was not given for righteousness. It cannot create righteousness. And in fact, it is passing away because something better is about to come in the new covenant. That process of demonstrating now begins in chapter 7. And just as with the didactic process, it as well continues all the way to the cross. So let's look at what he does now in chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. I want to use the map at this point to give you some appreciation for what Jesus is doing in his ministry at this point. This is a map of the region of northern Canaan, what we would consider today to be northern Israel. And to give you some landmark references, the body of water in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. The area to the west is the region of Galilee. And I want to give you a sense of how small this region truly is. If you were to superimpose a map of, say, Bear County, our county here for San Antonio, Bear County actually would go over into the Mediterranean Sea on the left, on the west side, and on the right, on the east side, would actually go all the way over the Sea of Galilee. In other words, the whole region we're talking about here is barely 25 miles across. So the area we're speaking of here is quite small. It's easily walkable, and that was, of course, the transportation of the day. So we, we start at the very beginning of chapter 7 with Jesus in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the very northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And as we said last week, he spends quite a bit of time in the, sea of, uh, in the city of Capernaum. He comes in and out of that town regularly. As you go down, though, directly southwest, you reach eventually a point called Nain, right on the hill of Mora. That's where we are today. He's made that roughly 20-mile walk from Capernaum down to Nain. 
as we now enter into these verses today. This town was located on a hill, as I said, called the Hill of Moreh. Or in Hebrew, hill is actually Har, H-A-R, and it would be said to be Har Morah, Har Morah. That would be the name of that location. If you look a little farther down the red line, which represents one of the major roads of the day, it eventually intersects a town called Megiddo. It sits on a hill as well, Har Megiddo, which is where we get Harmageddon from. That is the place where the great battle at the end of tribulation is said to take place, or it's associated with that place, Harmageddon, or Armageddon. This site, the one that we're talking about today, though, Nain, is of some significance in the Old Testament, as this is the site where Elisha in 2 Kings is recorded as bringing back to life a dead boy, the son of a Shunammite woman, a widow, in fact, a woman who... uh, received this son late in her life because Elisha gave it to her. In other words, God gave Elisha the word to tell the woman that she would have a son late in her life. That son, though, later died, and Elisha was called back, and he returned and brought the child back to life. If you've read Second Kings, you might remember the story of Elisha actually getting up on the bed and laying himself on top of the boy, arm on his arm, face on his face, and literally paralleling the boy's figure. And as he lay over the boy, the boy began to warm up, because he was stone cold, and he came back to life. Jesus, I'm sure, must have recognized the connection between this location in the minds of the Jewish people, given its history under Elisha and its recording in Scripture. He must have understood all of that significance when he used this site for his first recorded incident of raising somebody from the dead. This is the first time in the Gospels Christ does this particular miracle. And though he'll do it again in other cases, this is obviously the most dramatic of his miracles. Anytime you raise somebody from the dead, it's going to be a very notable experience. And he selected this location as his first place to do that. You would also notice in Luke's description that Jesus now is continually being followed by large crowds. Now, we've talked about this in the past. I want you to continue to have this picture. I don't know about you, but whenever I've read or or, uh, not read, but seen on television or in movies depictions of Christ in his ministry, for some reason, the way those scenes are always depicted, you have Christ, you have the apostles, and you have a few stragglers. And maybe when he gets into the middle of a big town, there'll be a crowd for a moment, then they all disperse, and then he and the disciples go off and they have a little discussion for a while. You know, you know the scenes I'm talking about, right? It was nothing like that. Every description we have of Christ from this point forward in the, in the Gospels, up until the point where Christ becomes a persecuted individual, up until then, he's followed by large crowds. He has no personal life anymore apart from just constant attention by huge throngs of people wanting to be healed, largely. And that means that sometimes as we study what he's saying, we need to be careful to take note of whether he's talking specifically to his disciples or whether he's addressing the larger crowd. Because at times, his message will be subtly different depending on which of those two audiences is in view. And the text will typically tell us which is which, is which when he's talking to one group and when he's talking to the other. So we'll take note of that today. Now, the scene we just described plays out, I would argue, pretty straightforward, right? It's pretty clear and understandable in the terms that we've been given. You have Jesus. He's approaching this town. Now, in this day, cities were walled. You may know this as a form of protection. They typically had a high wall around them to keep out thieves, to keep out marauders. But they had to have a way to get in and out, of course. So there was a gate somewhere in the wall. That gate was the in and out point for that city. Now, the cities were small. There was very little space within the confines of this wall, certainly not enough space to have a cemetery to give up valuable land simply for the purpose of burying dead people. 
So the practice in that day was to take the dead out of the city and bury them outside the city. This is, in fact, what goes on with Christ himself. Christ is buried outside the city of Jerusalem for the same reason. And so Jesus, as he approaches the city, he's going to have to walk in through the gate. And, of course, this funeral procession is going to have to walk out through that same gate. And so it's not a very big space. So what I want to kind of communicate here is that in order for one to get in and the other to get out, they'd naturally have to come in close proximity to one another. It was very obvious that in that day, these two parties would have just collided as they were walking through that gate. And that's what happened here. So Jesus is about to enter the town. He's met by this funeral party. And they're carrying the body out and they're preparing to bury it. Now, it's, it is noticeable, or notable rather that Christ encounters the funeral procession at this point. And the reason it's notable is this body had been prepared for burial, which in that day meant it had been wrapped up in cloth, probably covered in uh, embalming chemicals. Typically, we're talking about dry powders, myrrh being the most common. What I'm getting at here is the body is definitively dead. At this point, there is no doubt in the minds of anyone in that funeral procession that they're carrying a dead body. We're not talking about Jesus coming up on someone who's died a few minutes ago or an hour ago, something where you might be able to explain this away as something other than what it is. No, this person's been dead probably for days, or at least a day. They've been prepared for burial. There are moments from going into the ground, and Jesus encounters them. Now, he encounters the woman. He encounters this funeral party proceeding out. Luke tells us that the body here is the body of her only son, and she's a widow. Now, this is another very significant detail. In fact, I would argue this is probably the most significant detail of the story. This woman in her culture is a widow was a very vulnerable person. We've talked about this here before, but I I need to give you an even greater appreciation for the vulnerability of this woman in that society. If she was without a son and without a husband, she was likely now to live out her days begging for her subsistence and really struggling to find a way to live. She was in desperate circumstances. She was at the end of her rope. There was every bit of chance here that this woman could either starve to death or find herself so desperate that she has to resort to some of the most uh, miserable ways to find food, to find subsistence. That was the outlook she had now in life. That's a part of her suffering in this moment. Not just the loss of her son, but the future she has in front of her as a result. And this detail also helps explain why Jesus takes compassion on this woman. I mean, after all, how many people may have died around Jesus on any given day in his ministry as he moves around this region? Death was actually a very common experience. But this boy, this woman, this moment is the one he chooses to act in. You know, we, we could skip over this detail. We could make note of it. We could mention it. We could move on. In other words, the fact that this woman is a widow and she's losing her only son could be interesting, but it's hardly the kind of detail you stop and ponder for very long if you read the Scriptures, and I'm the same way. But that's not what we should do here. Because Jesus raises this man... He demonstrates his power over death. That seems to be the interest. That seems to be the part of the story we want to go to real quickly. Let's focus on the, the, in, the impressive part of what he did. But it's more significant. It is more significant that he stopped and helped this woman than it is that he has power over life and death. Because he demonstrates that through his own resurrection. Had Christ never raised anybody in the way he did in, in, the, time of, in the case of Lazarus, for example, or in the case of this boy... He'd be no less proving himself to be who he is. He would have shown just as much power over death in his own resurrection. So these are not necessary, 
though they have the effect of enhancing people's appreciation for who he is, no doubt. But they're not that important. What's much more important in this story is the fact that he stopped and talked to this woman. The fact that he's reached out and took pity on this woman. And let me help you understand why. I want you to consider for a moment what it says about this culture. That a woman who has no husband and loses her only son is at risk of death from starvation. What does that tell you about the Jewish culture? In fact, consider this for a moment. She's walking with a huge crowd of mourners. You know, in our culture today, if you have a lot of people at your funeral, what does that mean? You have a lot of friends. You have a lot of supporters. You have a lot of people you can lean on for help, right? This woman is surrounded by people, and yet in her culture, she was in desperate circumstances. She was virtually alone. What does that say about the Jewish culture? In fact, consider that the entire book of Ruth, the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, it's predicated on the fact that Ruth, having lost her husband and having no son, was in desperate circumstances and had to go looking somewhere for support outside of the Jewish culture. That tells you something about their culture. Compassion in the Jewish culture is rare. It's a rare commodity. And hear what I'm saying here. I'm not coming down on Jewish people. This isn't about the individuals. This is about the culture in which they lived and the thinking that was in that culture which then created this kind of discompassionate nature. They were not accustomed to showing mercy. They were not accustomed to showing compassion. Remember, this was the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth culture. The law had left them with a harsh, unforgiving, uncompassionate, judgmental view of life. That was the effect of the law. Just as I would argue, any legalistic approach to righteousness produces. That's the fruit of that kind of righteousness. And so, therefore, widows were left, who were left without a son were, in the minds of the people in their day, they're simply being judged by God. They're just judged by God. You know, you've heard already, and if you've read the Gospels, of times where someone would go up to Jesus and say, look at that blind man, Jesus. What sin did the father or the parents of that man commit that left him blind? That was their question to Jesus. And he said, it had nothing to do with that. He was made blind so that now when I heal him, God would be glorified. But the culture said, there has to be a reason why you're suffering and it has to be your fault. And therefore, we're not going to help because it's God's judgment on you that you go through this suffering. In fact, the fact that there were many mourners in this procession and yet she was destitute and facing dire economic circumstances says more than I could ever say about how hard-hearted that culture really was. And then Jesus comes along. He not only takes notice of this woman, but Luke tells us he had compassion on her. That's an important detail. He's not doing this for effect. You see the difference? He didn't walk into the situation and say, ah, here's an opportunity for me. I can heal this son. I can bring him back to life. And that will give everyone something to look at. That will give me an opportunity to prove who I am. No, that's not what he's doing. He's genuinely reaching out to her in compassion over her circumstances. Now, of course... It served the second purpose as well, but that doesn't mean that's his first concern. James wrote a letter in the New Testament because of this very same problem carrying over from a Jewish culture into the early Jewish Christian church. Early Christians came out of the Jewish culture and they brought with them that same thinking initially into Christian living. So James writes this letter and he says in that letter, that despite their profession of faith, despite what they claim to believe in, he says they're continuing to be hard-hearted toward one another. 
And he was so concerned about this pattern that he put it into a question as to whether or not they were truly saved. He said their unwillingness to help one another was justifiable reasoning for questioning whether they were truly Christian or not. Here's what he says in just a couple of short verses in James 2, verse 14. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Well, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And what he's saying here is that profession of faith, that statement, that claim of faith, being by itself, being without any fruit, being without any proof in your life, in the works you do, is not faith at all. It's just a statement. And words are cheap. Just as when Jesus walked the earth, Jesus today still desires to show compassion to the world. But now he wants to do it through us, rather than the way he did it then, which was personally in place on the earth. And when his church, when his body here on earth merely shows compassion through its words, it's no compassion at all. It's no compassion at all. And James says that if a professing Christian lives their life that way without any visible compassion for the needs of others, then we have reason legitimately to question their statement of faith. What made Jesus' compassion known, the reason we know he was compassionate, the reason Luke wrote Jesus took compassion on the woman, is because he saw what Jesus did, because of the actions Jesus took. And before we move on to the card of the story, I want just for a moment to take note of ourselves. Let's just give just a thought in our own hearts about the fact that Jesus is a compassionate Lord and calls us to respond in the same way. It's, as I said, it's easy to speak compassionate words, to tell people, for example, and I do this too, and I have to always catch myself. You say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray on that. And then your mind slips, you go into some other walk in your life, and then a week passes and you realize, you know, I never did do that. I never did pray for that person. And they thought I did because I claimed to. Now, that's an honest mistake. We all do that. But if you're not careful, it becomes the pattern. I'll pray for you. Yeah, I'll give to your ministry. You never do. Yeah, I'll show up and support that activity. You never do. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there for you. You forget. It's easy to do it, but compassion requires that our concerns of them be actually first in our hearts versus the, the needs of our own, our, our own needs. Uh, Jesus demonstrates, as we said, what compassion looks like, but he said we need to be like him. So it's not just a matter of taking note of what he did and saying that was good. We should look at it and say, do we do the same thing? Obviously, we're not raising people from the dead. But as I said, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that he took compassion on people. How do you do that? Well, look at the pattern he established here. Number one, take note of who God puts in your path. Jesus was walking into a city, and I have to imagine there was activity all around him. People walking in, people walking out, crowd following him along. But it just so happened that the moment he's walking through this very narrow gate is the very moment that this woman comes along needing exactly what Christ can do for her. I would tell you that that's going on in your life every day. I know it does in mine. Phone calls, emails, Cross a chance passing somebody in the hall. Uh, you know, a stop at a roadside stop sign and you look across and there's somebody you know. I mean, there's all manner of interaction with people in your daily life, both strangers and friends, family, etc., that God puts in your path and it begs the question, why? It's not chance. It's not coincidence. There's no such thing. So if God has put someone in your path 
Whatever way that contact occurs. The question that ought to be in your mind in that moment is, God, why did I have to see this person today? Why did I hear from them today? What's my purpose in having interaction with this person? What is it I can do for them? Now, if you live your life that way, it'll be a busier day, and you'll be far more focused on ministry without any effort to go off and become a professional minister. But I'll also tell you that it's going to, make enrich, it's going to enrich your life beyond your wildest dreams. You're living for other people in that way changes your whole day. I remember once I was driving to Houston. This was years ago, and I had to get there quickly. I was uh, going to, I think, pick up my wife at the airport, if I remember. And you know how it is you see hitchhikers? How many of you stop for hitchhikers in the middle of nowhere? Well, you know, good sense would tell you not to. And I understand that thinking, and I generally follow that. But I had a feeling as I passed this guy like I had never had before that I had to stop and pick this guy up. And it was the weirdest, and the guy did not look like somebody that you want to pick up. Right? This was not, didn't have a business suit on. And I did. I pulled over. The guy got in the car. And I remember thinking the whole time, I hope I don't get killed before I get to Houston. I mean, it was just that kind of, a, of an experience. And he starts going on about his troubles. And he has tons of them. And next thing I know, he's telling me he needs money. Well, okay, I kind of saw this coming. And I ask him why. What's going on? Well, I need to get to so-and-so's place in uh, some other state. And he had some long reason why. And I said, well, why don't I stop at the bus station I'll buy you a bus ticket to that place. Now, that's a test on my part, because if the guy said, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to do that, then I had reason to doubt his story, right? But he actually said that would be great. Thank you. And that's what I did. I bought him a, if I remember right, it might have been like 99 bucks or something. I don't know what it was. But it was enough that it meant something to him that somebody stopped and did that for him. I haven't heard from him since. I don't know what came of that. I don't know why I had to do that. But I had a conviction in the moment, that's what I should do. Now, for that one story, I'll tell you, there's a thousand times I haven't done that where I have felt the calling and I've ignored it. So don't look at me as the saint at all. My point is, though, we've all had that. I would be willing to bet most people in this room have had that experience on both sides, in times when they have succumbed and in times when they haven't. And when you don't, you always think back about it, don't you? And it doesn't guarantee that because you do, you're going to hear the end of the story, that God's necessarily going to tell you all of why you did it and what it means. It's not necessarily his to do that in every case. But the fact that he wants to show compassion through people ultimately means he's trying to spread the gospel message through us. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is to begin by opening up a relationship through compassion. And I know sometimes we try to help through other means, like giving money, for example. And that's okay. I understand the desire to do it that way. But I'll tell you that if you made a point of helping in every way possible other than money, you'd get far more out of it. Volunteer time, volunteer effort ideas, just establish relationship. Sometimes that's the thing that matters most. In the end, it's simply compassion for the true needs of someone else. And that's what Jesus does here. If we're faithful to imitating Christ, God is going to be seen through us in showing compassion by our work. So here's Jesus encountering this funeral procession. And he actually stops it. You notice it said that the people who were following all came to a halt. I'll tell you why they came to a halt. Not because of anything he said. Because of one particular thing Jesus did. And it touches on the issue I introduced with, the issue of the law. He learns of the woman's situation. And then he does this thing that's really calculated to shock the disciples and the crowd. He walks up and he touches the body. Now, it says coffin in my version. In verse 14, it says Jesus touched the coffin. But the word in Greek, soros, Literally translated is bier, B-I-E-R. 
Some of your versions may actually use that word. And beer most literally means a stretcher. And what we're talking about then is a body wrapped in cloths laying on a stretcher and it's being carried out. So he's not, in cor- he's not encased in wood. It's not a coffin in the sense of what we think of today. And when Jesus went up, he touched the body. Now, why is that so shocking? Well, the law said touching a dead body made anyone ritually unclean. It comes out of Numbers 19. I'll just read you that quick part. Numbers 19:11. The one who touches the corpse of any, person, of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanliness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean, and his uncleanliness is still on him. And that's just one, one little detail from within the law, but it was an important detail. The Jews went out of their way to avoid touching a dead body. And when someone had to, for the sake of preparing them for burial, for example, they then immediately were sent outside the city and remained secluded from the rest of Jewish society for that one-week period until they could be received again as ritually clean. So by touching this man, Jesus was, in effect, making a very powerful statement to the disciples and to the crowd even. A statement that really transcended, for a moment anyway, his demonstration of power over death. I mean, once the man rose up, they probably forgot a lot about his uncleanliness. They were too excited over the event. But in the moment he touched that body, there must have been a gasp, I would imagine, out of that crowd. Because it's not just anyone touching the body. It's a rabbi. It's a teacher. One of the highest in society, lowering himself in this way. It would be as if you all were somehow around me, following me somewhere, and I walked into a bank and robbed it while you were with me. It would be this thought of, what is he doing? What kind of example is he setting? Some might look at this and say, well, you know, you're making an awful lot out of very little. How do we know, in fact, that that's what Jesus was really thinking? How do you know that's really a big part of this story? Well, go back to what I said last week. What we looked at Jesus teaching in chapter 6 became the impetus for what he did in chapter 7. He taught on the need to have compassion to the whole world, to bring the gospel message to more than just one nation. And he demonstrated that through the uh, reaching out to the Gentile soldier. But he also talked at length in the Beatitudes about the law. The problem is we didn't see that. And the reason we didn't see that is the Gospel of Luke does not address those passages. The Gospel of Matthew, on the other hand, includes a great deal more from what Christ said that day. And the difference between the two largely rests on the law. Remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. So he focused a lot more than Luke did on Jewish issues. And, of course, the law is entirely a Jewish issue. So we really have to go back and look for a moment at Matthew's gospel to understand what was taught just before this event so that we can understand more why he's doing what he's doing here. And just a couple of verses out of Matthew, Matthew 5, 17. This is some of what Jesus taught before he came down to Nain. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this passage was part of what Jesus had taught the disciples right before he does what he does here in Nain. And in Matthew's account, he's, I want you to hear what he's saying in those verses. He's using effectively reverse psychology, what we would call reverse psychology. And here's how he's doing that. He says, don't think I came here to tell you that the law is wrong. Don't think I've come here to say that all that you've been taught about what the law requires is somehow void and wrong. In verse 18, he says that the law will not pass away until all that is in it has been accomplished. He basically said two things there. He said the law will pass away. But it won't pass away until all that's in it has been accomplished. First, and there's really two ways it has to be fulfilled. First, God has to be satisfied according to His law. He's not going to dispense with the law until what it requires is satisfied. God, by His very nature, by who He is, cannot accept imperfection without passing judgment on it. He can't deny Himself. He can't change His nature. And His nature requires that He hold accountable those who violate the law. And until He's done that, for everyone who's violated the law, the law cannot go away until He's satisfied. God gave the law as a holy standard. Now, I want you to understand the law is not complete in its description of holiness. If you did everything in the law and nothing else, that still doesn't mean you're holy. Understand that. The law is representative of holiness. It is not all-inclusive. It is not an exhaustive list of what holiness looks like. And the surest proof you need of that is when Christ says, you think you haven't committed adultery? Well, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. But that wasn't in the law. What he's pointing out is the law is representative of righteousness, but it is not a complete, total, and finished description of righteousness. Righteousness goes even beyond what the law requires. And yet it was there as a standard, as a picture of holiness. So the first meaning of Jesus' statement is that until God is satisfied that all flesh is judged according to the law, either by receiving glory for having kept it, or receiving damnation for having broken it, until he's done that for all flesh, the law cannot go away. But once that has happened, the law will no longer be necessary. The second meaning, though, is a little more complex. And I won't go into it in as much depth, but I do want to cover it because it is true. The law was given as part of a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. The covenant, the contract. That covenant provided for certain obligations. Obligations on the part of God, obligations on the part of the people of Israel. Until all of those are met, the contract is not complete. If you hire someone to do work in your yard, you sign a contract. You'll pay them and they'll do such and such work. Well, until the work is done and the payment is made, the contract is still in force. Once those terms are met, the contract has done its job and it's no longer needed. That's what we mean here by the law cannot go away until all the terms are met. That finally occurs at the very end of tribulation, in the end times. So not until right before Christ's second coming, at the end of tribulation, not until then do the terms of that covenant fully occur. Only then can the covenant be ended. But as I said at the beginning, Jesus makes reference to this in an ironic sense. He's using reverse psychology because he is essentially saying that unless the disciples are able to live a life that is perfect according to the law, then they can't depend upon the law for righteousness. That's what he's saying here. You notice he said, I didn't come to say the law is bad. He says, I came to fulfill the law. And if you're going to live by the law, you're going to have to be even better than the Pharisees and the scribes at the way they try to keep the law. Do you know how 
striking a statement that was? For, to, to even put a rough parallel on it for you, that would be like saying, you will not be acceptable to God unless your life is better than Billy Graham's. Or pick whoever you want that you think is the epitome of a Christian. Pick some standard of the person you think, gosh, if I could only be like that person. And then hear somebody say, you know, unless you're better than them, you won't get into heaven. What a hopelessness that would leave you with in the moment, right? How do I go back in my life and undo all the other stuff I've already done? How can I even do that? Much less try to make better going forward. It would seem as though I have no hope at all. He says that if someone annuls, that's the word in my version, in Greek that's luo, L-U-O, which literally just means breaks. So if anyone breaks even one of these commandments, he says, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven, which is to say you won't be there. And then he clarifies that in the next verse. He says, unless you present yourself even more righteous than the scribes, you can't enter heaven. And understand, he's not saying the scribes and the Pharisees were righteous. He's simply making use of the fact that they're seen that way in the, in the society of that day. People saw them as the standard, though they were pitifully not. And he says, if you want to get into heaven, you've got to be better than that standard, according to the law. What do you think his point in all this is? What do you think his point in touching the body is? What do you think his point is in sort of banging up against their conventional thinking? His point here is it's not simply enough that you would try to keep the law. The law can't get you into heaven because the standard is perfection. If you want to enter heaven on the basis of how good you are as a person, you know, you have every right to do that, just as the men and women in that day did. That's your option. But you ought to at least know what the bargain is that you're making with God. Because the bargain you're making with God is that you want Him to judge whether or not you've earned entrance into heaven on the basis of how well you've lived your life. And He's willing to do that, but because it's His heaven, because it's His creation, He gets to set the standard for what defines perfection, what defines satisfaction. And His standard is that you cannot violate a single one of the laws written in the Old Covenant. Not one. Not ever. Once you've done that, you've violated the whole law and you are going to receive the judgment that comes from that sin. And Jews, just like people today, they had deluded themselves into thinking that God graded on the curve. That, and we can all articulate it differently, but you've heard this, I know. God is going to recognize my good efforts and He's going to give me credit for my effort. And, and though I broke it here and there, I did it mostly good. You know, I wasn't as bad as the next guy. The other analogy, of course, is the scale in the sky. You've heard that before, I hope. Where as long as when I weigh all my bad and my good, that my good overweighs my bad, surely God's going to be fair. Surely He's going to give me a break. You know, surely He understands the sensibility of letting me into heaven because I'm better than worse. And we, people live their whole lives thinking that way. The Jews were no different. They had a law, they struggled to keep it, and when they failed, they simply fell back on this, well, at least I'm doing more good than bad. That should be enough, I hope. That was the thinking of the day. But God says, no, a man working his way to heaven would have to exceed the efforts of the Pharisees at keeping the law, if they had any hope, and exceed it to the point of perfection. And, of course, that left them wondering, where do they go next? So, Jesus now is... Finished teaching the disciples about the impossibility of getting to heaven under the law. That's what he did in Matthew, in the Beatitudes. And here he is a few days later, making himself ritually unclean. Violating essentially the law. Violating one of the rules of the law, if you will. 
And that's the point of this message. Jesus shows compassion on the woman because he gives no regard to a law whose purpose was not about making us righteous in the first place and passes past the law in order to heal this boy. Now, I want you to stop for a moment because if you're thinking I'm saying Jesus broke the law, I'm not. We'll cover that as we get to the end here in a minute. But just for the moment, leave that thought open and consider what it would mean for a Pharisee to try to do the same thing. A Pharisee would never have raised someone from the dead, even if they had the ability, if using that ability required that they first touch a dead body. They would never have done it. And the reason they wouldn't have done it is because keeping the law was more important to the Pharisees than showing compassion was. Remember when Christ walked into Matthew's house, the house of a tax collector, and there were all those other tax collectors there for the party? What did the Pharisees say to Jesus at that time? What was their criticism when they spoke to the disciples? Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Remember that? What was their concern? That he was associating with the lowly. That he was letting himself be associated with people who the society had condemned. And what was Jesus' response to that? In Matthew 9.13, he said this, Go and learn what this means, speaking to the Pharisees. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He says it very dismissively. Go and learn what this means. Go figure this one out. Get your thinking right. God's not interested in retribution. He's not interested in us condemning. He's not interested in our setting up who's right and who's wrong. He's interested in compassion. And he says, the physician didn't come to heal the well. He came to heal the sick. That's what Jesus said. He knew the law was not going to make men righteous. Not only were the religious leaders in that day misusing it for exactly this purpose, as an attempt to condemn and separate themselves, it also had the effect of being an excuse on their part against doing the very thing that righteousness required. I want you to see how backwards this becomes. They're trying to be righteous, but the laws and the rules and the way they obtain righteousness is set up in such a way that it actually forces you to live a life opposite of righteousness. Rather than showing compassion and mercy, rather than putting other people's needs first, making yourself righteous under the law is all about who? You. about you, right? It's all day, all moments of the day, thinking about you. And what do you need to do to make yourself righteous? What do I have to do to protect myself? What do I have to do to make God happy with me? It's a very self-centered view of life. And by its very nature, it takes us out of a mode of compassion for our fellow man and puts us solely in this self-centered view of our world. And in doing so, we become the epitome of unrighteousness by our efforts to pursue righteousness. It's such an ironic outcome from the desired solution. When men concentrate all their attention on trying to make themselves righteous by works, it becomes nothing but a self-centered pursuit. And in the economy of works... A participant is always going to have a selfish outlook on life. I want you to test yourself a little on this, and maybe somebody you know can be a, an example as well, if, if applying it to yourself is too difficult. When, when somebody is following a works-based perspective, everything they do is connected to making themselves look and feel righteous. Every decision they make. There's no room, therefore, for compassion and mercy. And there's no concern essentially for the world, other than how it impacts the self. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't preclude somebody with this outlook from saying things that are compassionate. Remember what we just said earlier. Lots of people can say things, but it's in their work that you know their true heart. And people who have a legalistic view of, their right, of, of religion 
who take on a works-based mentality will naturally be self-centered and focused. And I, I want to offer you a challenge. See if I'm correct about this. Consider someone right now you may know or someone you've known, whether a Christian or not, who you would consider to be very rule-oriented, someone who's very legalistic in the practice of their faith, whatever that faith is. Perhaps even somebody who is entirely works-based, who's not Christian and is literally pursuing some work-based religion. Now, consider that person for a moment in your mind and consider whether they are relatively low in compassion. And consider whether they typically show mercy for those who are unrighteous. Remember, it's easy to show compassion for the righteous. Christ said as much earlier in this same gospel, right? The test is, what is their perspective against those they perceive as unrighteous? If they're like the people I know who fall into this mode, they're quick to judge. They're quick to condemn. They are often very self-absorbed in their own pursuits. They're often closely connected. In everything, everything they do is closely connected to how it impacts their view of righteousness. What they do and what they don't do all comes back to rules that they've defined that says, here's what righteousness looks like. They're very inflexible about those rules. And it's all according to that system of works-based belief. And I would tell you that some Christians do this. Certainly many who are not Christian do it. That's a common type of religion in the world. But the effect of that outlook on the life, the effect of allowing our standard of righteousness to be based on our actions rather than on God's grace, on a living out of the law or any law that we make for ourselves, the effect of that, regardless of how well-meaning it may be, is that it alienates people from us. And the gospel message will not be heard by an audience that is alienated by the me- from the messenger. It's the opposite of grace. I want you to consider the difference now between that and grace. Grace begins with compassion. You know what the word means, right? Unmerited favor. Showing favor to someone who doesn't deserve it. Not just someone who's sort of neutral. They flat out shouldn't be given favor. But you give it to them anyway. Unearned favor. That has to begin with compassion. Because it's unearned. If I don't have compassion on them, they'll never get it from earning it. And by definition, grace is an expression of mercy. Because it seeks to give something that's undeserved. That's a merciful approach. Grace, by the way, precludes all judgment. It precludes all condemnation, even though they deserve it. Grace can never be self-focused. If you're in the mode, if you're in the habit of showing grace just as God did to you, you will not be self-focused because grace is all about looking for the undeserved so that they might receive your favor. And it recognizes your own unworthiness of the grace you receive, so it doesn't leave any room for feeling good about yourself. By nature, it takes your focus off you and puts it on others who, like you, need unmerited favor. And then consider now that that's your obligation. That God said that because He showed you grace first, though you were still a sinner and opposed to Him, that is now your obligation to others. Jesus touched this body to show His compassion. To say, not even the law itself in this mode, in this sense, was going to prevent me from showing this woman compassion. And as I said... Don't assume that because he touched the woman, he violated the law. It's possible, for example, that he later went through that whole seven-day ritual. The Scripture is silent on it. There's no reason to assume he didn't. 
He could very well have gone through what the law required in order to demonstrate that he was, in fact, going to keep the law and thereby live a sinless life. But I want you to consider another possibility as well, one that I actually favor. Consider for a moment that Jesus may not have had to purify himself according to the law. Because in this case, at the point when he touched the body and spoke his words, the man returned to life. He wasn't dead anymore. And so the argument could have been made in the moment that Jesus had not come into contact with a dead body. Where's the proof? Well, he touched that guy. Yeah, but he's walking around. Hmm. How do I get that rule broken then? I mean, I don't know which is true, but you could argue that he didn't have to worry about cleansing himself now because he took away the offense by virtue of the man not being dead anymore. Then as the body rose up, the text says, fear gripped the crowd. And I can imagine the answer to that is no doubt. Can you imagine? I mean, I know it's hard. We're not there in the moment. Can you imagine? If you've been to a funeral lately, you know how those moments are. They're very solemn. Nobody's joking. I mean, you're trying not to be flippant. Everybody's very somber. Can you imagine the body coming out at that moment? That's kind of like the procession out of the church for us on the way to the graveyard. Can you imagine somebody sitting up and talking at that moment? What what would that have done to the crowd? The, The bedlam that would have resulted out of that? It wouldn't have been just cheering and clapping. These people would have been terrified. And that's what the word means. Fear in the, in the most severe sense of the word. Terrified at what just happened. And I have to imagine the reason you're terrified is because anyone who has power over death not only can give life, but they can take it. And in that moment, you're not sure what this man's purpose is. But then it says that they glorified God and they made two very specific statements. And these statements, by the way, are important because they lead to the next series of verses. First statement they said, a great prophet is risen among us. There's little doubt out of this statement that the people in that moment, as they were seeing what Christ did and recognizing the significance of Naim historically, are all looking at what just happened and believing, at least some of them anyway, that this is connected to Elijah's miracle from the Old Testament. And remember what Malachi teaches. Though you may never have read that book. Malachi teaches that in some future day, Elijah will return. And they are now perhaps concluding that Jesus is Elijah. Elijah, a great prophet, has risen. He's risen, meaning come back to life. That here is Elijah now, promised from Malachi, coming back, proving himself by doing essentially what the, his, the same thing his own son did here centuries earlier. So some have begun perhaps to see Jesus as Elijah. But what's really interesting is the next statement. The next statement, though, some in the crowd, not believing that, they think something different. They say, God is visiting his people. It's a very interesting statement. This statement's interesting because it sounds so similar to something Isaiah writes in prophetic words about the coming Messiah. What does Isaiah say? He says that the Messiah will be Emmanuel, or in English, God with us. And so this statement, God is visiting his people, could very well mean, for those in the crowd who said it, that they recognize this man is the Messiah the promised Emmanuel, who's come to visit his people. This is probably the earliest recorded evidence in the gospel of anyone coming to that conclusion. Yeah, there's been people who've shown him faith, like the Roman soldier, but none of that has to necessarily mean they understood that he was the Messiah. They could have thought him to be any number of things and still had faith in God through him. But here we have people willing to say for the first time in Scripture, this is the Messiah, The Jews had long been promised out of their Old Testament that someone eventually would be brought to them, a man, 
who would have the power to heal their nation, bring them back into God's favor, to raise them back to the point where they would be the chief nation of the world again. And they had long imagined a leader who would come in a very militaristic way to fulfill those prophecies. And they're a little stunned that it would come in this way, that this traveling itinerant preacher would be the Messiah. So the statement is sort of, is this it? That God is visiting us? This man is going to be the Messiah? There's some question even as they make the statement. That's why we see what Luke records next. And we have a few minutes left in the day, so we're going to read the next series of verses, begin them today, and come back to them a little next week as we finish Luke 7 next week. Look at Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things, meaning the things we just read. In verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. John and his disciples had heard the reports of Jesus. What they had heard specifically was, there's a man raising people from the dead. You notice he's been doing a lot of these kinds of miracles, the the lame, the lepers, all of that we've already heard recorded. But until this event, word hadn't gotten back to John. This gets back to John, though, and that precipitates his question. Are you the expected one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? That word expected one in the Greek, erkomai, erkomai literally translated means the coming one. Well, there's only one in Jewish culture that was expected, that was to come, and that was the Messiah. His question specifically is, are you the Messiah? Or if not, is it somebody else? What's curious about this to me is, why does John the Baptist need to ask this question? Isn't this the guy that baptized him? Isn't this the guy that said, another one will come after me of whom I'm not worthy to untie his sandals? Isn't this the guy that looked at Jesus and said, why am I baptizing you? You're supposed to baptize me. Why does he need to ask this question? Why does he have any doubt at all? Well, in fact, he may have even suspected that Jesus was the Messiah back in the time when he baptized him. But the fact that he's asking now, I think, demonstrates clearly that the answer is no. He didn't know for sure back in those times. When he was baptizing Jesus, he had some sense, as I said, maybe even suspected who he was, but he couldn't be sure in the moment. And also, remember how the Jewish nation had taught on the prophecies of the Messiah. They had taught that this man who came as the Messiah would do all these things we just read, yes. But he would also do some very dramatic things. He would make all nations come under Israel. He would conquer and destroy all sinning Gentile nations. He would remove all sin from the earth, in fact. He would rule over the entire earth in peace. He would do some very dramatic things, which this man, to to this point, has not done. Of course, what were those prophecies speaking about? They're speaking about Christ's second coming. Because he does all these things, but he does some now in this day, and he does some later in his return. And because they saw them all together as one list, there was some doubt as they watched Christ in his ministry as to whether he could truly be the Messiah, because they couldn't see how what he was doing in his day was ever going to lead 
to him conquering the Roman army, to controlling the whole earth. It didn't make sense. Well, and for good reason, because he wasn't going to do that in his first coming, as we know. So John, understanding that there was some question, he asked these disciples to go check with Jesus. Now, it's important to note something as we finish for the day. It's important to note his motive. Can you not remember other times as you've read the Gospels when somebody would come up to Jesus and ask him plainly, well, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? And what would he answer? Would he say it plainly? Would he give them the answer they're looking for? When they interrogated him during his scourging before he went to the cross and the Roman soldiers and the Roman governor were trying to get an answer out of him as to who he was, did he say anything at all? Just as the prophecy in Isaiah said, like a sheep to the slaughter, he went silently to his death. He said nothing in defense of himself. So why is he willing to answer here? Why is he willing to give John the Baptist a straight answer? And he does give a straight answer. And yet in other places in the Gospels we're going to see later, he refuses to answer the very same question. Well, the difference is the motive in the one asking. What's John's motive and how can we tell? He says, are you the one or should we continue waiting for someone else? By the very question itself, he demonstrates he wants to know if if Jesus was the Messiah because he wants to know who to worship. He doesn't want to withhold his worship of the Messiah if, in fact, Jesus is him. But if Jesus is not him, he doesn't want to misdirect his worship either. He wants to hold it back and wait for the correct person. His motive is all about wanting to know so he can do what he's supposed to do. But what was the motive of the Pharisees? What was the motive of the Roman soldiers or the Roman governor? It was in trying to get Jesus to say something that they could accuse him by, that they could condemn him by. And he's not going to satisfy that motive. And then look at his answer. He says plainly, tell John the Baptist that you've seen the proof. Even before he answers, the scripture says that when they ask the question, it says in verse 21, at that very time he cured and so on and so on and so on. It's almost as if the question got asked and without answering, Jesus turns and performs miracles kind of a demonstration in the moment, and then turns back around and says, now, go tell them what you've seen. He doesn't just want to say, I'm the Messiah. He wants to prove to these men so that John the Baptist will know for sure this is the Messiah. He says, the blind can see, the lame will walk, the lepers are cured. And he says, the good news, remember in the Greek, the good news, gospel, same word. The gospel is proclaimed. Jesus is actually directing them to their own prophecies out of Isaiah. First in Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35, 4 says this, Say to those with an anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. That's the prophecy that Isaiah gives over what the Messiah will do when he comes. And Jesus turns to the men and says, tell them you just saw these things happen. In Isaiah 61, there's one more verse that adds one more piece. In 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And that's the reference Christ uses when he says, Tell them that I am proclaiming good news. I am doing what Isaiah said I would do. And so he gives John the answer that he desires. He establishes to John conclusively, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a holy man. He is, in fact, the one 
who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. People I've often heard say, Jesus never states who he is in Scripture. He never stands up at any point and says, I am the Messiah. Well, if you understand what he's saying here, he does. And he does it in other places as well. Jesus is not going to reveal himself to someone whose motives in knowing the answer to that question are not the right motives. He requires first a humble heart. He requires a heart made ready for the good news, just as John the Baptist did in his day, making people ready for Christ. And this is a wonderful point for us as we end today and as we enter into Christmas. Blessed is he who does not take offense at who Christ is. Let's leave ready here today to enter a world out there, outside this building, that celebrates Christmas but takes offense at Christ. They celebrate Christmas, but yet many take offense at Christ. And when we go find them, we don't bring judgment. We don't bring condemnation. We don't carry a picket sign on the street corner and rail against the stores who refuse to put Christmas up in their stores. Why don't we do that? Because we're alienating the very people who need to see God's compassion through us so that they might believe in the gospel. Let's bring them the good news. And more than that, let's demonstrate a love that shows compassion and mercy and grace, as God did for us. As Peter says in His letter, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. No one's going to ask about what it is you believe in unless there's something compelling about what they see in you. Father, I thank you again for the time in the Word. I praise you, Father, that we've had a reminder out of your Word today that the compassion you showed us through grace is now our command as well, that we would reflect that love and grace in the world around us. Father, I do pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit we might be convicted of sin, that we might remember even now those things we've done, those things we've said, and maybe continue to do and say that do not reflect compassion and mercy, that stem, Father, from a judgment of others, that come out of a misplaced perception of our own righteousness and From that stand, allow us to look down on those we view as unrighteous. Father, that is a tendency all share and will succumb to. But, Father, that is not you. And I pray, Father, that through the Holy Spirit, it would cease to be us as well. That rather, Father, they might know you by our love and ask for a reason for that hope that is in each of us. And that then, Father, we might be prepared to give that defense. Lord, as we go out from this day and this week, and into the season ahead. I pray, Father, that Christmas would once again be a focus for each person on the love that you showed through the birth of your Son on this earth, that we would not simply participate in the Spirit through the various Christmas traditions, but we would truly participate, Father, through the love we show the world, and that compassion, Father, would rule our days. And if it be your will, Lord, I pray that others would join us, that this small gathering could grow according to your purpose, that the message we bring to whomever comes would be true and uncompromising according to your word, but always, Father, in love and a recognition that we've all been in the place that others come behind in. Father, a place of recognizing our own sin and knowing that only by your grace can we be saved, not by our works. Let us be used in that way, Father. And if it be your will, Father, I pray that We would once again be here next week to continue in study of the Word. I thank you and I praise you, Father, as our Lord and our Savior.
and in his name. Amen.